Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Cuestionamiento del sistema jamás van a informar objetivamente y son máquinas de propaganda de una revista de extrema derecha, Newsweek, sobre el Ecuador y básicamente sobre la matanza. That is the sound of the president of Ecuador, Rafael Correa, denouncing a young Canadian freelance journalist for a story that she wrote that appeared in Newsweek magazine last January. In his 12-minute diatribe against this journalist on state TV, President Correa calls the journalist, her name is Bethany Horn, he calls her a right-wing operative a liar, a capitalist propagandist, a permanent hater of Ecuador, who, he suggests, may never have even been to Ecuador. Uh, in fact, she largely grew up there. But that's not where I spoke to her. I spoke to Bethany Horn in the basement of her parents' house in Cambridge, Ontario. And she will be with me in a moment to tell her incredible story. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Liz Walker, David Fiander, Nathan Cooling, Jeremy Kay, Mark Robertson, Michael Ganley, Jason Krog, Joel Freeman, Tim Maroney, Allison Garwood-Jones, and Andre Taupin. Andre, why did you decide to be awesome? I don't feel awesome, Jesse. But it's a way of contributing to freedom, to democracy, to... It, maybe also it's a way of silencing my bad conscience for not doing anything. 
just being a spectator to what's going around. And we need people like you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. I am a patron of CanadaLand, although I haven't gotten my t-shirt yet. So. It's coming. Okay. okay. <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, thank you for supporting the show. Um, let's start at the beginning. What brought you to Ecuador? My family moved there when I was six, uh -huh. and I grew up there, and I moved back in 2012 to try to be a journalist there. What brought you there in the first place? Why did your parents move there? They were missionaries, so my whole family moved down. And then you did your schooling here, and then you Yeah, I did J my school, university here, yeah. At King's College, and, and you were involved in Open File. I was. I was there, one of their first interns in Toronto, and then... I was their first, um, one of their first two hires in Halifax. Yeah, uh -huh. that's another episode someday. <laughs> <laughs> but so you go to Ecuador when? After Open File folded. So how long ago? Wasn't it in 2011 or 12, something yeah. like that? And then I took some, some months off after Open File closed. And with my savings, I, I'd always wanted to go back to Ecuador to work. So I did it. Did you have a job lined up, or are you just going? No. <laughs> I just went back. My family has a lot of friends, and yeah. my cousin lived there still at the time. And so I stayed with people and sort of looked for work. And, and you were a freelance journalist looking for work in the Spanish press? Um, I wasn't freelancing at that point. I was looking for work in the local media, yeah, because I kind of wanted to learn more about the country mm -hmm. as as a journalist, can learn about stuff. I mean, I'd grown up there. I had a certain circle of people that I was close to, but I 
hadn't seen it from the perspective of the media. I had read the media, but I hadn't been inside of any media organization. So I wanted to understand Ecuador, I guess, from that vantage point. And I got hired at the Telegrafo newspaper in early 2013. Is that an independent paper? It was independent, if you can call being owned by bankers that run the country independent. It was... It went broke in 2007 or something like that, and then the government bought all of the presses and the offices, and it has been run as a, as the only state-run newspaper since 2007. So when you arrived, it was a state newspaper? Yes, it was a state newspaper. So give me some context. I don't know anything about Ecuador or what's happening politically there. Sure. Well, when I was a kid, it was sort of a joke the political system was a joke because every so often the president would just get overthrown by a popular coup or a military coup, but the military always called elections. There was never there was never a dictatorship during the 90s, but it was just very unstable. It was sort of a joke. Um, ten years, like seven different presidents. There was one day when there were four different presidents during the day, and there was no stability. There wasn't really any powerful institutions or parties. And then in 2006, the broad left joined together and they promoted this candidate who was new. He'd never run for office before. He was sort of unknown. And he won election. And that was Rafael Correa. So he won his first election in 2006, immediately disbanded Congress and called a constitutional assembly to rewrite the constitution and promised to be super democratic and everybody voted for their representatives to send to this brand new constituent assembly to write a new constitution from scratch. Um, and it was, everybody was happy because the country had this new stability that everybody was behind this new constitution and there was a referendum to approve it and everything. Um, and now it's been seven going on eight years that he's been president and sort of, it's, it gets old, you know, power corrupts and his left wing friends have left the party. He's become the institution that he hated of all power and all aspects of life. He's different from his predecessors in that he has invested the profits from oil into social programs. Mm -hmm. So that has maintained his support, even though he's not really true to his initial promises. But he's putting money into hospitals, he's putting money into schools and He's very proud of the money that he's put into building roads. But that's kind of the only difference from the populist leaders that came before him that didn't really have a strong guiding ideology, but were very fond of power. What was your original initial take on him? Like, did you have a political Um, affiliation or, or, or feeling for what he represented? I remember that was that was the year that I left and came here for university. So I was there during the campaign and the people that are my friends in Ecuador are all in very poor neighborhoods and sort of he had a lot of support from the people that I know and and so it was encouraging that he got elected especially considering his competition at the time. 
so I didn't live there during the early years. My friends would send me the cop, the little paper copy of the Constitution that they mm-hmm. were very excited about that everybody was getting. I read it all from afar. Uh, and it sounded great. Uh, I like democracy. I like uh, people getting a chance to write their constitutions. This constitution was also pretty revolutionary in its environmental clauses and giving nature rights for the first time in a constitution and talking about plurinationalism and indigenous tribes having the right to self-determination within their territories. And it was a very inspiring constitution. And what was his agenda when it came to the media in Ecuador? His agenda when it came to the media was was confrontational from the beginning. Like, What was the media like before him? I think it was pretty bad from my <laughs> journalism school shaped media criticism perspective. I thought it was pretty bad. Anytime that they covered something that I actually knew something about, I know you notice errors, just basic misspelling, no care for for the news and Rafael Correa has a point when he says that and when he says that the newspapers and the television stations were more so platforms for the economic elite of the country to mm-hmm. to shape uh, public opinion in their favor. It, he's definitely right. The president is definitely right when he says that before him, the media was owned by very, very rich people and it represented their interests and it wasn't a public service at all. So did he run on a platform of like nationalizing media? Or? He didn't run on a media platform that I that I remember. It okay. was it was a political platform. But he very early on started having conflicts with the media that was sort of run by people that he had replaced in power. Mm-hmm. So... In 1998 and 99, Ecuador had a really severe financial crisis. Millions of people lost all their savings. The banks collapsed. It was a banking crisis. And hundreds of thousands of people had to leave the country to find work illegally. Mm -hmm. So Correa could blame the bad guys that caused the financial crash and on everybody's ills that still remained when he when he got to power. And so when he started confiscating the media that belonged to the bankers who had caused all this pain in your lives, people supported him. Yeah, those people stole my money. And I don't want them to have a newspaper or a television channel. It's it's great that the government is taking over these media spaces. So he had support when he started saying I'm getting people's savings back from the banking crisis, so I'm yeah. going to confiscate all of your assets, and that includes land, but it also includes this television channel. And so it was an economic gesture of, of right. Yeah, but he was also removing a you know a propaganda device of these hated bankers, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Now then, you get into this question of well, what do you do once the government seizes the media? Does it create a public? Yeah, and broadcasting system or a state broadcasting system. Journalists at the time that I respect, they were mixed. They didn't come out against it, and they said that their opinion on that seizure would depend on what happened afterwards. Yeah, if it was sold, if it was made a public good, if it was sold to actually get back money to give back to people who had lost their savings in the banking crisis, 
But that actually didn't happen with very many at all of the assets that were seized, land or media. The government kept a lot of it and ran it. And there's, there's television channels. There were about seven when I was a kid, maybe. And three of them are now confiscated mm-hmm. by the government and are now run. One of them is an actual state public broadcaster. The others are supposedly companies that or are... which, a state broadcaster or a public broadcaster? One of them is supposedly a public broadcaster, okay. yeah. And so you enter the scene and you go to work for this state newspaper? Yeah, yeah. Did you did you just get that this was going to be a, you know, take its orders from government? Or did you? Or was there some... I wanted to see what it was like. Because reading that newspaper, there was at least some information. The, the private newspapers, because the president had developed this confrontational relationship with them, and they sort of pushed it, and also were very keen to confront him directly, they didn't get much information from institutions, ministers, politicians right. who were writing laws. So you read them and it's still, they're not a good news source because you're not finding out what's really happening. Yeah, I don't know who to blame for that relationship. It's like, it's like choose a side. Do you want the... Yeah, do you want the private newspapers that that don't kowtow to the government, but also have no information in them and aren't really a public service. And arguably have an interest against the government. Who, of course. Yeah. Or do you go into the public, between quotation marks, media, that has access to ministers and yeah. can find out what laws are being written and what what resources are being dedicated to policing or... And in a hopeful time when, I guess, the jury is still out as to whether or not... I wasn't super hopeful, but I was curious. I was very curious. I wanted to see what the editorial process was like on the inside in one of these supposedly public media institutions. And And what did you write about? (laughs) Well, I was... I was picking news stories from the Spanish coverage Mm -hmm. that were maybe relevant to a bigger audience, and I was translating them into English and publishing my own sort of English blog that I inserted stuff into the translations that... Sorry, you were independently publishing an English blog? Yeah, nobody edited me. I just wrote... for the paper? For the paper, Yeah. yeah. And at the same time, I was coordinating their online newsroom to... Mm -hmm more how to cover stuff than what to cover because we covered stuff that the editorial, the print decided was worth covering. But we had a little freedom, especially when I came in and was focusing on social media and the stories that people were talking about. We could, we could do an online only story about that that wouldn't get to print. And because it wouldn't go in print, it had less scrutiny from the government. So it was fun for <laughs> even in Ecuador, there's a digital ghetto. You get to do more things on, <laughs> yes. online than in print. Yeah. Yeah. How old were you? Um, 26. Uh-huh. Uh, it was exciting. It was exciting. It was very exciting. And I got to work with super cool people who are young and tech-savvy. And eventually I did get a few stories into the print paper, Mm -hmm. which were after the Snowden revelations and more technologically oriented. And we actually were a WikiLeaks partner, pre-publication of Spy Files 3, I think, their Uh release. So that was also fun. I got to do some fun stuff. Take me to the freelance work you did for Newsweek. Okay. 
So when I was still working at the state newspaper, there was a day that actually was my first day on the job. <laughs> Chavez died, Hugo Chavez, who is Ecuador's bigger brother in terms of their political ideology. Yeah. So the whole print newsroom was focused on that. But on the same day, there was this massacre of indigenous people in the jungle that got way less attention because it wasn't as politically convenient as talking about Chavez. But I was very interested in it because you don't hear about uncontacted tribes very often. Yeah. And I'm very interested in technology and thinking about technology. And this is sort of the opposite of, of that. And maybe I'm into extremes, but this tribe of people, they'd lived in the Amazon jungle for as long as anybody had records for. And they had no trade with outside tribes. They had no friendly relationship or communication. They had a totally separate language from any Amazon jungle tribes for hundreds, thousands of years. What are they called? They are known today as, well, they were called Aucas, which was the initial thing that people called them when they didn't actually know what they called themselves, and that was up until the 50s. Nobody knew what to call them because nobody had any communication with them. So that word meant savages in uh -huh. the language of a neighboring tribe. And then once we learned what they call themselves, which is Waurani, the people, but now in the 50s there was a split between Waurani that wanted contact with outsiders, actually missionaries, and Waurani that didn't, and went deeper into the jungle, and they split from their kin mm -hmm. who, who developed a contact with the outside world. And so that tribe that split from Waurani, they're still Waurani, they still speak a very similar language, but they're now known as Taromenane. There's a few different tribes of them, a few different family groups. They probably share a language, we don't know. They just live in this sort of shrinking space of independent jungle yeah. in Ecuador. And tell me, like, uh, I, I don't, it's sort of a harsh thing to ask for a, a summary synopsis of, but this, this massacre, can you quickly tell us the story of that? Yes. So, the history of conflict between this split Waurani tribe is long and, and very bloody. So there have been a lot of confrontations between the Taromenane and the people that surround them over the years. This most recent one began March last year when the uncontacted tribe killed a couple of elders from the Waurani tribe. They pierced them with spears. It was interesting because the Waurani tribe has cell phones and stuff like that, so they filmed their elders dying and their last gasping breaths. They were, like, stuck with wooden spears and the Waurani are filming their last moments. The tribe was doing, like, citizen journalism yeah. coverage. Yeah. So these videos of dying Waurani elders got posted to the internet shortly after they happened and the Warani tribe was like really upset <laughs> because these two old people who weren't doing anything supposedly they just got killed by these savages so 
I was in the state newspaper newsroom and we were prohibited from like showing these photos of this violence. Why were you prohibited from showing the photos of the violence? Because it's uh, it's not I don't know. <laughs> Just because it's it's not I don't know. You couldn't print a photo of somebody who was shot in the head and the front page of the Globe and Mail, that wouldn't be cool. Just because it was too gory and explicit? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was sort of an interesting social media story for me to try to find these photos that weren't being publicized, or the video was actually hard to find, but I was a social media editor and person in charge of an online newsroom, so it was kind of fun. You found it? Oh, yeah. I have it on my computer. <laughs> so this happened. It was very traumatic for the tribe and a few men in the Warani tribe who had lost their elders to this violence started plotting to go and get revenge and revenge is a is a cultural concept to that tribe that is pretty violent and has a lot of history but they were buying rifles which is the difference when you're when you're attacked by spears and you're immediate instinct is to go and buy firepower and gasoline and so this this tribe that knows what a gun is and has cell phones Mm -hmm. what is their level of contact with the developed world they have a lot of contact and a lot of support from the government they work for oil companies they work for all sorts of industry that is moving into the amazon rainforest and the ecuadorian side they leave they go move to cities they learn spanish They've been contacted since the 50s, 60s, and have sort of adapted. So this group of maybe a dozen men, they start buying weapons and planning a hunting party to go find the uncontacted tribe and get revenge. And this whole process takes about four weeks, three weeks, uh, and they find a family of Taromenane, uncontacted tribe in the greater Amazon rainforest in Ecuador and and then the story gets confused. So they shoot them? Did they use guns? Did they use spears? The story that I included, like that I wrote in my Newsweek article was based on the best sources that I could find, which was a book written by a clergyman who had been a missionary among the Warani for decades, now lives in Spain. But he he wrote his account based on audio recordings of interviews with the killers. He interviewed the killers himself. And they were they were not hiding anything, they were boastful. They were boastful initially. So they they kill probably about twenty people, including many women and children. As you describe it, it's a massacre. It's pretty horrible. Uh, I don't describe the worst things that 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 these men have described. They describe, um, yeah, they describe very bloody things, killing children, killing mothers in front of their children. And so they come back, they travel through the jungle three or four days to get back to the city, and they start going on national television and boasting that they've got revenge. <laughs> Not on state channels, not in my newspaper, but... The banker-owned... Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is, to look at the politics of this, for the private media in Ecuador that is opposed to the government, this is a political story. 
sure. because this armed tribe is associated with the government and funded by the government? They work for the government. They get handouts. And to this question of revenge, was there any inference that the people killed were the people who slaughtered those elders? That's what the Warani who did the killing said. They said that they overheard conversations within the huts of the of the tribe before they attacked, talking about boastfully killing these elders. But Yeah, <laughs> and we're talking about women and children. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything's a political story in Ecuador these days because the main political event is this war between the media and the president. So... So, yes, it was definitely interesting to the opposition papers because the constitution that was written and approved in 2008 provides extraordinary protections for the uncontacted tribes and any attack on their land, on their water, and on them is, according to the constitution, to be considered genocide. Uh So... There's also international law measures yes. to, to protect uncontacted unca- Yes, but the Ecuadorian constitution is way stronger to uh-huh. call incursions on their land genocide. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The reality is that the Ecuadorian government has ignored this problem for many years, this conflict that brews between the Warani and the Taromenane, and has taken away funding from the government, the ministry that was in charge of, of this protection of... Yeah. of keeping this protection. What is the government's interest? You mentioned oil earlier. Oh, yes. So there's. they just launched oil drilling into this part of the jungle. It's sort of the last part of the jungle that they hadn't sold for oil rights. They actually had the oil rights for it. They were just not drilling. And they did this massive media campaign to, to say, let's protect this chunk of the jungle because it's so beautiful and because uncontacted people live there and it's their only habitat in the world and they did this huge PR campaign to get people from Ecuador to support protecting this but mainly to convince foreign governments to give money to save that piece of the jungle. Uh-huh. You wrote a heavily detailed, heavily researched piece for Newsweek that we can link to. Yeah. But... Um uh, that, I guess, gives us a nutshell of, of the story that you reported for Newsweek that yeah. I guess you were not able to report for the state newspaper. Right. So what I want to talk about now is what happened to you okay. because you wrote that story for Newsweek and exposed this to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I wrote for Newsweek was basically what people in Ecuador already knew if they were reading a wide variety of sources, which not many people do. But So I put something together in English for an international audience. So I published it in early January. So after I worked for the state newspaper, I went directly to work for a university project. A public university? It was, yeah. Okay. So I that lasted about three months, and then my Newsweek article was about to come out. I was expecting backlash, and I didn't want the backlash against me to affect any of the people that I worked with. So I left the job at the university. The article comes out. It goes everywhere in English. Uh, It was actually translated for a Dutch newspaper and published in Europe. And I think it was a week after that. It was a Saturday. Every Saturday, the president talks to the nation 
and it's very put together and he has a, he's hired a whole team of people to put together the Saturday broadcasts but it's sort of every week we hear from the president who he hates this week and what's been going on and so I was in Ecuador's version of Stephen Harper's 24-7 I guess <laughs> This is is this just on YouTube or is this on Oh no no. This is on state television. It goes on all of the channels usually uh for a few hours on a Saturday. It's an institution. Now they've done 400 episodes of it. So, I was it's Saturday. I was tense. I was expecting something to be said because my article had even been translated into Spanish by that point and published in the Mexico Newsweek. And this has a different profile because it's about the international audience that's about America. Yeah. It's, it's not, you know, it's, you know, a shunda for the, for the rest of the world. Like you, you were, you were exposing. I was exposing something that they didn't want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. The article was discussed for about 13 minutes on a Saturday. And he said, <laughs> Correa does this hilarious thing where he's sitting at his little table being broadcast to the nation and he says, like, let's send a tweet. And he types a tweet in, and he sent a very angry tweet to Newsweek live on television about this article calling me a liar. You're watching the president of Ecuador spend 13 minutes decrying your article <laughs> yeah. and, and, and calling you a liar. Yeah, and he said that I'd probably never even been to Ecuador, which was personally very hurtful. <laughs> and that Newsweek was this right-wing brag I don't know, but I'm not, so... What was he playing on there? Was he playing on... Was there a concept of America as yes. an oh. enemy and a right Yes. Yeah. American imperialism trying to reach its tentacles into our wonderful democracy. Yeah. And you were described as this instrument of who's probably never been to Ecuador. Yeah, yeah. Did he mention you by name? Not in his broadcast, no. Uh -huh. But I, I tweeted back at him. <laughs> During the broadcast, and he got back to me later on Twitter by name, calling me a fame monger and all sorts of more fun things. But the main result of this attention that the article got was that more people in Ecuador read it, which I was very happy about. And his army of trolls that exists that I can't prove that they're on the government payroll, but it's an open secret that they are. They turned on me and started calling for my deportation. And uh, stop for a minute and tell me a bit about this. You know, this is something that I, you know, my ultra search engine we talked about happening in in Russia. Mm, that yeah. their government affiliated very similar operatives who will leave angry comments and it's like astroturfing. Uh, but this happens in Ecuador as well. Yeah, it's because the internet is this place where anybody can say anything, which in a government that likes to control information is very dangerous. So they hire more people to give more messages to have equal weight with actual humans who, you know, are tweeting or on Facebook. So it's very similar to the Russian situation. You know when you start getting insulted by a Twitter account that has 12 followers yeah. and 20,000 tweets that you're probably being a target of one of these trolls. Except I was a target of a bunch of them at once. Right. Um, what was that like? What kind of things were being said privately? What kind of huh. things were being said publicly? <laughs> I believe there was a death threat, but I kind of 
provoked it because I wanted to be able to say that there was a death threat. But there was a lot of... Um, How do you provoke a death threat? I say something really rude to them. Mm. <laughs> and You probably want to kill me, don't you? <laughs> yeah. I don't remember. But yeah. there was definitely a death threat on public Twitter to me. A lot of deportation. Get out of my country. You don't belong here. You yeah. don't know anything about this place. You're just a white person trying to you know, influence our sovereign politics. And and a few of my friends who've known me for years come would come on and try to say something like, she's not like what you're saying. You have no idea who she is. But it's drowned out by the massive amounts of Twitter trolls. And, 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 though, and though it's anonymous people with obviously AstroTurf uh, accounts, yeah. you're also simultaneously being decried by the president. Yeah. Yeah. It must be scary. Um, sure, it was scary. It was. I remember being very careful about how I walked home or taking different routes and sort of watching for people in the street because my photo was also everywhere, you know? And you're conspicuous anyhow, I guess, Nick. <laughs> yes, very conspicuous. And people from my previous workplace, I was still in touch with them and they were telling me, like, there are these intelligence officers in our office asking about you. And we got a phone call from the minister to tell us to fire you, even though you're not here anymore. And so your suspicion was confirmed that you needed to... Many different ways, yeah. yeah. I definitely fought it in public. I fought the lies that they were trying to spread about me. I fought the lies that they were trying to spread about my story and about its validity and about the real tragedy and the real danger that these tribes are still facing and the hypocrisy of a government that wrote this constitution to protect them and then totally abandoned their responsibilities. And I kept talking about it. I was I went on television channels and in newspapers and radio and I didn't go away quietly. But And this is just you. I mean, yeah. I guess you had the institutional backing of Newsweek having published the article. Mm. But you're just a freelancer. Yeah, Newsweek was... That was my first article for them. So it wasn't like I was there. I mean, they were, they had a certain sense of protecting me, but they also didn't know me. I've never met anybody from Newsweek. Yeah. So it's different. They have no influence or presence. No, they didn't put me in Ecuador. I was in Ecuador, and I decided to write this article for yeah. them. Newsweek was cool because when the ambassador of Ecuador to the U.S. wrote them a very stern letter signaling errors in my piece. They they sent it to me first, and they were like, is she crazy? And let me respond to it before they published <laughs> before they published it. They published my response yeah. simultaneously, and they were very interested in supporting me if I needed support. I didn't ask for a lot of support, because I've lived in Ecuador my whole life. I felt I could handle it. Yeah. yeah. How did this all end? I was bullied out of the country. I was scared about the government wanting to know a lot about me and sending their spies to my workplaces to ask about me. I had wanted to stay there. I would have loved to stay there, but it was just too hard. <laughs> so. Yeah. You going to go back? Yeah. Yes, Korea, I'm going to come back. I have to. I grew up there. I love it. It's my home. It's 
it's an amazingly fascinating country. And I, I know way too much about it. I could never be a journalist anywhere else and know that much about the context of the place that I was reporting on. I mean, Canada is, you know, up there, but I love reporting from Ecuador and I love writing about what goes on there in this sort of strange twilight zone that it is. So yeah, I, I hope I can go back. It's just an incredible story. I mean, we're, we're sitting in your parents' basement in Cambridge, Ontario. Yeah. And you went to Ecuador to do journalism at tw- 26, you said? 25. The age of 25. Yeah. And your first piece for the foreign, for, for uh, international press led to you being decried by the president <laughs> and, and, and by the ambassador and attacked by paid online goons. Sure. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It's an auspicious beginning <laughs> to your career. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It was it's hard. <laughs> I don't want it to happen every time I publish something, but it is good to be controversial and com- confrontational, I suppose. It is, and it's there's just no more telling sign that that you are onto something important than that mm. the highest level of power in the country needed to vilify and denounce you. It's been the fallout has been really nice because before that nobody in Ecuador knew who I was, really except for the people that I lived with and that I had grown up with. But after people and journalists and human rights activists and indigenous tribes saw what happened and how I dealt with it, I think I gained I gained friends and I gained respect and I've I feel even more connected, I guess, now to the political processes that happen and to the yeah the ongoing struggle for democracy. It's a difficult one for you, I guess, if, you know, a lot of journalists in their 20s will go and it's a good way in the business to go and be a foreign correspondent or just on their own. Is it? Well, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I've known a lot of journalists who've kind of gone to Cambodia and they, they can get published in big publications because, I mean, there are a lot of expats, you know, whatever, you know, white kids from North America doing that, but foreign bureaus are closing down yeah. and if you want to go somewhere and have an adventure you can maybe get published and then you've got this problem when you come home is whether or not that translates to a job or not but that's not your story because mm-hmm. it wasn't just some romantic adventure where you could kind of like I mean somebody else it would just be a feather in their cap I was driven out of Ecuador because my journalism was, was you know so dangerous for the government but you actually have like roots there yeah I have a lot of roots there um, yeah I think journalists should have context for what they report on. And I wrote for the Calgary Herald, actually, while I was there once, and I wrote for the Globe and Mail once while I was there. And I felt good that I could contribute context to stories that were appearing in international media that otherwise would have been written from wire copy or mm-hmm. would have been written by somebody who had maybe two years of experience living in the country and and making contacts. If that, you know, parachuted in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Globe and Mail has one person for all of South America. Yeah. They have Stephanie Nolan, who's great, who I talk with sometimes and I respect. But that's a lot of land. That's a lot of people, and it's really close to us. It's a lot of news. Like, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of news. Yeah. (laughs) So, I don't know. Yeah. What's next? What's next? Um, 
you know, keep on keeping on. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you looking to work here? Looking to work here? Uh, no. What, what I have, I don't know. I'm looking to continue to do work. I have a lot of Ecuador stories, actually. People write to me because they think that I have this access to international media, so I get all sorts of stuff all the time. I have encrypted conversations with journalists who are fleeing the law and hidden in the jungle. I have, I get Twitter direct messages from presidential candidates. And What you're telling me is that you're continuing to report on Ecuador from your parents' home in Cambridge, Ontario. Yeah, and it's... I don't have to be afraid that I'm being followed by any Ecuadorian spies. <laughs> Thanks, Bethany. Yeah, no problem. That's your Canada Land show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I'm on Twitter at jessebrown, and the show's website is canadalandshow.com. The crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Christopher DeMello. Shortcuts is on hold until the new year, so we'll be back with a new episode of Canada Land on Monday. If you like this show, support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.